We have two speakers today. Uh, Miriam Betancourt is um, a physician in private practice dermatology at Betancourt Skin Center in Henderson, Nevada. She is an assistant clinical professor of medicine at the University of Nevada and adjunct clinical professor at Tura University. She completed her undergraduate education at Bandarantes College and completed her medical degree at the University of Sao Paulo College of Medicine, both in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Dr. Betancourt has given a number of scientific presentations uh, such, on such topics as psoriasis treatment options, skin cancer screening, skin rejuvenation, treatment options, and psoriatic arthritis. She is a member of numerous dermatological associations. We also have uh, Dr. James Louis, who is an associate physician diplomate in the rheumatology at David Geffen School of Medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles, where he's a professor emeritus of medicine and rheumatology. He is also a consulting attending at the West Los Angeles Veterans Administration and consulting coordinator for the Southern California Consortium of Rheumatologists. After receiving his medical degree from Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, Dr. Louis completed his internal medicine internship and residency at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, Maryland. Subsequently, he was awarded a fellowship in rheumatology and immunology at UCLA Community Health Sciences, where he remained to serve as chief medical resident in internal medicine. He is board certified in internal medicine rheumatology. He is a well-known speaker and researcher and has been recognized with numerous honors and awards. Please welcome Dr. Betancourt and Dr. Louie. So um, thank you all for being here. This is gonna be a very unique opportunity for us to, for us to have a discussion between a dermatologist and a rheumatologist at the same time. And I'm honored to be uh, next to Dr. Jim Louie, who uh, has a lot of experience in psoriasis, professor amateurs at US UCLA. He has worked with Amgen before in the grounds up of uh, create, creating Embraer, actually. And, uh, and now he's back into academia again. So uh, we just need to have the slides uh, set up over here so we can get started. And, uh, I'm very involved with uh, PA education. In my practice here in Las Vegas, I, I'm part of Toro University, which has a PA program. So I have uh, physician assistants rotating my practice, not always uh, uh, going to dermatology. I have one who just uh, finished up the one-month rotation with us, and she uh, went to North Dakota. She's going to be doing uh, family medicine, but in a very underserved part of the country, so she needed to have some knowledge in dermatology, and that's what we did. Um, and I also have medical students coming, but between uh, medical students and PAs, I always enjoyed uh, being involved in education. I did my training at, uh, in Brazil originally, so that's why you hear my southern accent. And, uh, and then when I came to this country, I went to Duke University, did training there, went into academia for a while. I've been in solo practice for uh, over tw uh, uh, 12 years here in Las Vegas. We do a lot of clinical trials, and we get involved in a lot of clinical trials on psoriasis in the office. Sometimes it's easier to do clinical trials in private practice than it is in, in academ academia. When I was at University of South Florida in Tampa, we had a such, such a tough time in getting things through. Um, the academic institution is easier for me now. So I'm, I'm assuming the slides are not gonna show up here, right? They're gonna show up there? Is that correct? Okay. Um, okay, so it's the opposite direction that I thought. So uh, again, we're here to have this discussion between dermatology and rheumatology. 
Let me see if I get this right first before we move forward, because it's not going. Let's see. And we're certainly here speaking on behalf of Amgen. We want to thank Amgen for sponsoring this function uh, today. And uh, we all know the indications of uh, Ambrel for psoriasis. Patients were 18 and above for, uh, for chronic moderate to severe psoriasis, but it's also indicated for psoriatic arthritis. It was first indicated for psoriatic arthritis before it became approved for psoriasis. And uh, it reduced the signs and symptoms of psoriatic arthritis, but Dr. Louis will tell us a lot more about this part, but it inhibits the progression of the structural, structural damage uh, that uh, psoriasis can cause. All right, and then uh, besides this discussion, it's gonna be very interactive. We're gonna have times for questions at the end. So uh, if you have any questions, write it down and we're gonna be available to answer any questions here on the podium or if the meeting keeps going, you can meet us at the end and we'll be able to answer questions. Uh, we're also gonna go over the clinical char characteristics of psoriasis, the safety profile, efficacy data, and long-term experience with, uh, with Ambrel. All right, so this, the, usually as dermatologists, we see the skin manifestations presenting to us usually 10 years before a patient will, pre, will present with joint symptoms. 30% of patients' psoriasis may actually have psoriatic arthritis. The skin symptoms occur first in about 70% of patients. The joint and skin symptoms may occur together in about 15% of those patients. And the joint symptoms may appear first in another 15% of patients. So sometimes patients go on with psoriatic arthritis not even knowing they have the disease, and they may, may be diagnosed two years later. About 29% of those patients will, will have a delayed diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis. So we learned very early on as dermatologists to ask questions to our patients about symptoms of psoriatic arthritis. And I'm certainly not a, a rheumatologist, that's why we have Dr. Louis here to go over a few details with us. But one of the initial questions that I learned to ask my patients is about morning stiffness. So uh, Dr. Louis, just tell me a little bit about, is that true that morning stiffness is one of the first signs of psoriatic arthritis? Yes, I think people have uh, uh, found out that just like in rheumatoid arthritis, that morning stiffness is a good clinical sign to elicit. And if it lasts more than the 15 or 20 minutes that those of us with gray hair have, then it's probably significant. So I, uh, you know, given that question, as a dermatologist, the AD tell us to ask our patients about symptoms of psoriatic arthritis. Of course, I feel comfortable in sending my patients to a rheumatologist if I feel like it's necessary, but I wanna know if that patient has psoriatic arthritis so I can make the decision on what medication the patient really needs. Because there are patients with very mild skin psoriasis, but if they have psoriatic arthritis symptoms, that patient may qualify to be on a biologic, especially a TFNF inhibitor like Ambrel. So here's, I'm gonna tell you a few uh, personal stories, okay? I always like 
personal examples because that's what sticks to our mind. I'm here in the clinic, I'm seeing a patient and asking pa a patient the question if they have warning stiffness because I want to see if I want to do a biologic, a TNF inhibitor or not. So I kept asking the same questions about morning stiffness all the time until I ran into a patient that I asked, do you have morning stiffness? And his answer was, uh, well, I used to have it when my wife was alive, but ever since she died, I'm sorry, I don't have any morning stiffness anymore. So ever since I got that answer, I, I start modifying my question and, and be a little bit more specific. It's the spine, it's the joints, that's what we're referring to morning stiffness. Um, but I think it's still a good question to ask, very good question to ask. Um, the other thing about asking about psoriatic symptoms, I don't go much further because I don't have the time. In my practice, I'm seeing 50, 60 patients a day, and I'm by myself. I don't have a physician extender. I would love to have one. So I'm doing everything by myself, doing surgery, moles, and uh, clinical trials and cosmetic procedures all at the same time and running from room to room. But the second question that I ask from my patients to rise is this, uh, how much does the psoriasis affect their, impact their life, psychological aspect of their life? And you think that by asking that question, you're gonna open Pandora's box and you're never gonna leave the room because now you're gonna act as a psychiatrist with the patient but I need to know that information, and it doesn't take much time because I want to know how much the psoriasis is really affecting that patient so I can make a decision. So I think two things are important. Does the patient have arthritic symptoms or how much the psoriasis really affects their personal life? Because, another example that I'll give it to you, I thought I was being a very good dermatologist in treating a patient who, to me, had very mild psoriasis. And this, uh, Dr. Louis, was in the early days where Am uh, Ambria was only approved for psoriatic arthritis and there was that shortage that you are very well familiar with. Ambria was not available for a while. So we could only put patients on Ambria who had symptoms of psoriatic arthritis. And so this patient didn't have, well, I didn't know if he had psoriatic arthritis, but he had very mild skin disease. Body surface area, probably about six, seven, eight percent at the most. And he was a 40-year-old man, CEO of this company, under a lot of stress. And uh, I thought I was a good, being a good doctor by prescribing one topical cream and then changing to a different formulation, first uh, an ointment, then a cream, then a foam, then a spray, and the patient was not getting any better. And uh, we all know the number one cause of patients not getting better is what? Who could say? If you're using topical medications, why people don't get better? And they're not using, exactly, so it's compliance. So he was not using the medications for whatever reasons, too greasy or too inconvenient, whatever the case was. So this patient comes back to me and says that uh, he was actually contemplating suicide, that he wanted a prescription for Prozac. And I said, well, I'm not that kind of doctor, I can't prescribe that to you. But that's when I realized that this patient was being affected, the psoriasis was affecting this patient's psychological uh, uh, mind. And I felt like we need to do something else. So Embraer was not available. I asked the question, do you have psoriatic arthritis? Do you have any morning stiffness or joint symptoms? Uh, his no turning to a, a yes in my form, so I could get Embraer approved to him. And 
the minute that he started on an embryo, a month later, this man comes with more energy, and we know, and Dr. Louis can prove that, that the arthritis tends to sometimes get better even before the skin symptoms do. And patients may not realize they have psoriatic arthritis until we put them on a TNF inhibitor and they come back more energetic, they feel better. And that probably could be related to early signs or symptoms of psoriatic arthritis. Would you agree with that, Dr. Louis, that the arthritic symptoms may not be known in the beginning, but patients feel better? sooner than the skin symptoms? Yes, and Does I'll comment affect? on that later on with very, the slides. Very good. So, you know, this is another uh, one of my first patients on embryo that I want to share this story with you. And then the point of this talk, and I spend a lot of time in this part, and I'm going to be brief on the others because this is, to me, is the most important part of our discussion. We need to have a friend in rheumatology, and not just any dermat uh, rheumatologist. It has to be somebody that you know, that you have a good relationship with, that thinks alike. And uh, so you can call, you can talk on the phone, you can put the rheumatologist in the speed dial and have this conversation back and forth. And the reason I say that, because I have another example of a patient who had mainly psoriasis, uh, psoriatic arthritis. He even had joint deformity of the hands, and he had very little skin involvement. So I sent to one of my colleagues here in Las Vegas, uh, for a rheumatology consult. I knew he had psoriasis. I knew this could be psoriatic arthritis. I, start, I initiated the prioritization for embryo in this case. And, uh, but I sent for the consultation. The patient came back to me, Dr. Lewis, saying that he's placed now on methotrexate and an NSAID. And uh, I was baffled by that because I already go in the direction of a TNF inhibitor and the patient comes back on methotrexate and an NSAID. Um, what do you think? I mean, why would a rheumatologist not think about TNF inhibitor like what I was thinking going that direction? Well, I can't answer for all rheumatologists, but right. I, I enjoy this kinds of discussion because I think we rheumatologists learn from the dermatology group and the dermatology group uh, learns from us and hopefully right. that uh, we can come together. The studies on methotrexate alone are better reported for skin disease than they are for joint disease. There are two small initial studies for just methotrexate alone, uh, and they were not sufficiently powered to really tell us its utility. And the most recent studies that have come out have suggested that giving methotrexate with uh, a TNF biologic is better than either one alone even in psoriasis as it is, and psoriatic arthritis as it is in rheumatoid arthritis. Mm -hmm. But alone, it's not quite as good, each one of them. The combination is better. Very good. And, uh, and just to finalize this part of, of our talk is, the fact, I'm gonna give another example of a patient who had mainly psoriatic arthritis and very little skin disease. And um, I was monitoring this patient without referring to a rheumatologist until he came to the point that he was not showing up for his follow-ups. And, uh, you know, we're wondering why he was delaying until one day he comes after many phone calls. And uh, I said, how are you doing? How come? It's been uh, eight months and you haven't shown up in the office. Oh, I'm fine, you know. Do you still have the drug? Do you still have refills? Oh, yeah, and I still have another um, six months worth of refills. Did somebody else giving it to you? No. 
Um, so how are you using it? He was using Embrel for pain. So he, this man had psoriatic arthritis. So Dr. Louis now, tell me, uh, we all know patients with psoriatic arthritis, they should be on maintenance dose. Yes, Correct? I think that's the best information. There are um, uh, lots of varieties of that. Uh, one of the varieties that's going around is trying to figure out once you get them into remission, our patients into remission, how long can you stop the drug before they exacerbate again? And I think those kinds of questions are being asked of all the inflammatory arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis. And that has very meaningful uh, considerations of that uh, in, uh, in other parts of the world where it's very costly. Mm -hmm. Very good. So now we're going to move on to our next slide. I think I'm still staying, okay, no, I'm going backwards, I'm sorry. Still learning to work this out. And uh, now Dr. Louis will tell us a little bit more about psoriatic arthritis. It's uh, this one moving forward. Thank you. Well, thank you again for letting me uh, join the podium with you here. I like this slide because it's su suggesting that we select the clinical features of psoriatic arthritis. And it's showing you the skin and then it's showing you proximal interphalangeal joint and distal interphalangeal joint arthritis. So that's one of the ways for you to help distinguish psoriatic arthritis from rheumatoid arthritis, although we have a little bit more difficulty differentiating that from osteoarthritis, because you know osteoarthritis and psoriatic arthritis tend to involve the distal interphalangeal joints, and the rheumatoid arthritis patients usually don't, unless they have coexistent osteoarthritis with it. So that's one pearl for you to take home. Proximal interphalangeal and distal interphalangeal arthritis. And then I try and teach my residents and fellows that they have to look at the other aspects of the skin to find the hidden spots of psoriasis, at least hidden for us because we're not used to examining the skin, just as dermatologists aren't used to examining the joints and the antheses. But if you look at the skin and you look at the nails, you may see some changes, such as pitting or ridging or a nicolysis, that should tip off my fellows to say that there is a dermatologic aspect to this that will help uh, make this diagnosis. And then they're talking about dactylitis, and the last one is enthesitis. And that brings up a whole new spectrum of understanding for us that we're just beginning to get into. There are some people that propose in rheumatology that the primary institution of inflammation is not in the joint in psoriatic arthritis, but is at the antheses, which is the attachment of tendon and ligaments to bone. Why is that important to us? It's because I've always taught my fellows how to examine the joints, and that's an important thing for them to do. But there are other parts that they have to touch and feel and press on and do a range of motion on, and that's the antheses. So you will have patients come in with heel pain that have good ankle involvement and good subtalar joint involvement, but if you touch the Achilles tendon where it inserts on the heel or the plantar fascia where it inserts on the bottom of the heel, you may pick up some enthesitis. 
I just had a patient come in the other day that said, you know, I spent the weekend in the emergency room at UCLA because I had chest pain, and they took six hours to work me up for chest pain. And then they figured out that I really have psoriatic arthritis, and it was just tenderness over the antheses of the ribs that prompted that admission. So here in the ribs and every part where a tendon and ligament attaches to the joint, and sometimes even the whole finger, that's what gives you dactylitis. That's the one in which the whole finger is swollen like that um, cocktail sausage you had last night at the party. It's big and swollen there. The whole finger, not just the joint, because that's where the tendon and ligaments are on the shaft of the joint, and it comes in with dactylitis. So it makes me remember to teach you that psoriatic arthritis is also an enthesitis, a dactylitis, and then when some people are suggesting that enthesitis is the beginning part, when it gets very, very severe, it moves into the joint. And that's what happens in the distal finger, that there's good evidence to show that the attachment of tendons and ligaments right under the nail is the first part of the inflammation. When that gets real big is when you get the DIP involvement. Okay, so that's what we have to examine. So that's a good slide for teaching us that psoriatic arthritis is so much more complicated than rheumatoid arthritis, so much more difficult to diagnose, and it reminds us that's a good slide. So then it reminds us that when you see anybody with joint symptoms in the small joints, they can be symmetric, they can be asymmetric. What do I mean by that? Asymmetric means it's on one hand, and it's in different areas than compared to the other hand. In rheumatoid arthritis, it tends eventually to be small joint symmetric, not exclu and excluding the DIPs. But if you see any presentation that's asymmetric, then you have to tend to think of the enthesitis-related diseases like psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, reactive arthritis, and GI inflammatory bowel disease. Those are the enthesitis-related diseases. And so when you begin to look at all those different ones, you've got to look at the nail, you've got to look at the DIP, and you've got to squeeze. And the one other differential you have to think about, if it's just one joint involved, is infectious arthritis. Because we would be remiss if we missed a case of infectious arthritis. And you say, well, that's easy, Dr. Lee. I can always pick that up. You know, I've seen gonococcal arthritis and so forth and so on. But there are subtle kinds of infectious arthritis that just happen in one joint. Keep your mind open. Plant thorn synovitis, somebody that uh, gets a plant thorn in there. All kinds of difficult infections that just come in one joint. One joint involved, rule out infectious arthritis. So here's an example of distal interphalangeal joint involvement, a little bit of redness out there, and some deformity in that little finger on the right-hand side, and you begin to say, uh-uh, this could be psoriatic arthritis. Let's think about this. And I don't mind if you take care of it in dermatology, if you feel comfortable doing that, uh, but please refer if you don't feel comfortable doing that because we need to share these patients. They may have to go to two different offices, but we want to take best care of them. Now, I do want to tell you that psoriatic arthritis, when it becomes an arthritis, is also a spectrum of diseases. It can be very mild in one disease. It can be very severe. So the term arthritis mutilans came from psoriatic arthritis first 
before they described it in rheumatoid arthritis. And mutilans means that there's so much inflammation there that it resorbs the bone on both sides of the joint, not just on the proximal side, as you tend to see in rheumatoid arthritis, but on both sides of the joint. And you know what? People who have psoriatic arthritis don't have as much inflammation in their joints when you squeeze them as rheumatoid arthritis. So I've had patients come in to me after five or 10 years of disease, all crippled up, all deformed. And I said, why didn't you come and see me before this? He says, well, I never had any pain. I just thought that was just part of my disease. So be aware, it's not quite as tender and not quite as swollen, but it can be very, very, very destructive and it can resorb that bone and that may lead us to biologic therapies. In fact, additional biologic therapies which is a subject of another talk. Maybe you'll have me back next year. <laughs> so then the next slide is to say, well, what are you talking about, Dr. Lou? You're trying to tell me that this is a very complicated disease. And so they're going through some of the reasons for that complication in that there's an antigen-presenting cell that somehow gets turned on. And when it gets turned on, it secretes a number of different inflammatory cytokines. And we tend to think from an immunologic point of view that there's a Th1 and a Th2. The Th1 is more cell-mediated, the Th2 is more antibody-mediated, but the newest one is the Th17. And it looks like we can learn, and that's why we're in medicine, we can learn from the bedside to go to the lab, we can learn from the lab to go back to the bedside, because we get to see both sides and we get to understand that. And it turns out that Th17 I think on the very top you can see IL-12 and 23, and the IL-12 is the one that tends to go on and give you the Th1 stimulation with increased interferon gamma and increased TNF, and those are the two of the inflammatory cytokines. But the Th17 on the bottom also goes to, uh, the T, uh, I'm sorry, the IL-23 part goes to the Th17 and activates that. Which one is more important in skin disease? Which one is more important in joint disease or in, 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 in theses? Hasn't yet been worked out. We do know, for instance, that IL-17 is very important in skin disease. We're now doing the research to try and figure out how important it may be in joint disease. We found out that if you give etanercept before you uh, if, you, if you biopsy the skin of a psoriatic patient before you give etanercept, and then you look at after you give etanercept, and you rebiopsy the joint, and you look at the gene array, what happens to the gene products in that skin before and after, that of course what goes down is the TNF, but it goes down in the responders and in the non-responders. The one that tends to go down the most in the skin is the IL-17. So IL-17 is going to be very important, and you already know when they show this slide that the IL-1223 monoclonal antibody called Stellara or Ustekinumab is very efficient in taking care of skin disease, just like the TNFs are, right? So there are some more cartoons to tell you that the skin and the joint inflammation associated with psoriatic arthritis is, is very complicated. One of the primary molecules there is the TNF because it's in both the Th1 and the Th17 parts. What part does the TNF play in that? 
What part does the IL-17? Do we have to give uh, therapies that take care of both? Maybe, but let's think about it. We do know, though, from the clinical studies that the therapies that restrict and abrogate TNF action work very, very well in patients with psoriatic arthritis. And we're trying to figure out if ustekinumab, the Stellara, which is the, anti, the monoclonal antibody against IL-1223, does that work in the joint as well as it works in the skin? And the preliminary study suggests not as well. So then, uh, very uh, long ago, when I still had black hair, uh, they came up with the, uh, the CASPER criterion for psoriatic arthritis to help classify them. Notice that all the time you read about criterion, they use the word classification. And the reason they use the word classification is they put up these guidelines to try and say if you're going to write a paper, if you're going to study a population of, of disease, make sure they have the disease, make sure they satisfy the classification criteria. We tend to use it at the bedside for diagnoses, but they're not exactly for diagnoses, but that's the way we tend to use them. I just want to put that qualification on so you see the subtlety there. So what are they talking about? If you want to make a diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis, you need these criteria and look at the numbers on the right. So if you can pick up current psoriasis, you get two points. If they give you a personal history of psoriasis, you get one point. If they give you a family history, they give you one point. Oh, wait a minute, there's a take-home lesson there. The take-home lesson is it's worthwhile asking if there's psoriasis in the family. It's worthwhile asking. It has the strongest genetic association of much stronger than rheumatoid arthritis, almost as strong as ankylosing spondylitis, but it's much stronger than rheumatoid arthritis. Particularly if they have psoriatic arthritis in the family, that's very important to write in the chart. Current dactylitis or history of dactylitis. So you ask them if they've ever had that swollen finger or that swollen toe that looks like a cocktail sausage, all right? Juxtarticular new bone formation, aha! That's the second part that differentiates from rheumatoid arthritis. In rheumatoid arthritis, when you start resorbing that bone that gives you, quote unquote, an erosion, there is no new bone formation. By x-ray, if you see an erosion with new bone formation there, you should be thinking of psoriatic arthritis. So that again tells you how complicated this disease is. We have to take care of the people that have the, of the mechanism that gives you the erosion and the mechanism that gives you new bone formation that tends to give you ankylosis. Psoriatic nail dystrophy, anicolysis, pity, and uh, what, what is that word? I can't, hypertrichosis, is that what it says? Hyperkeratosis. Hyperkeratosis, all right. See, not only do I have gray hair, I need new eyes, all right, there. And then they give you, uh, which we've already talked about, RF negativity. Now, give me a break. When did you ever use a criterion that was a negative criterion in a, in a diagnostic classification, right? But that's what they put there. Be what's that really telling us? It's really telling us that many patients with psoriatic arthritis look just like rheumatoid arthritis. They may have symmetrical small joint inflammatory polyarthritis, but the difference is they don't have the marker. And that marker, the rheumatoid factor, or the anti-CCP, which hadn't been invented by the time these, uh, when these criteria were first written, 
Either one of those makes you think more of rheumatoid arthritis, but then the qualification is 15% of people with psoriatic arthritis can have a rheumatoid factor. So that's not a good negative criterion, but it's used. Everybody uses these criterion to help write our papers, and, that's, and we still are using it, but we're trying to update it now. So Dr. Liu, is it true that patients who have uh, uh, nail pitting or nail involvement, those are more prone to develop psoriatic arthritis Oh, you bet. That's, that's, a good, true, right? that's a good thing for you to pick mm -hmm. up and for us to pick up to differentiate the two diseases. Okay. Thank you. So now we're going to move on to the safety profile, efficacy, and long-term experience with Embraer on the dermatology side. There has been more than uh, seven uh, clinical trials, including more than 4,000 patients reviewing the safety data, more than 1,000 patients, those studies that have more than three years' worth of continuous exposure to the drug. So we're going to briefly go through this because we're going to, I, I want this to be uh, more interactive for you guys and you learning from us what we do in, our, in the real world of seeing patients in private practice. Those are the studies and the information that we have regarding safety profile. When we look at the opportunistic infections, you see that between the clinical trial done in the U.S. and the global uh, pivotal trial, there, there is no changes between control, the placebo, and embryo, and the numbers are in the zero range there. Those are the clinical trials. Then you have the same consistent rates through the three years of continuous exposure. The numbers are very low in the zero rate. Now, when we're looking at TB, I think TB is very important, and uh, we're going to go over a little bit more in details later on about TB exposure. But looking at the clinical trial data, uh, now we're not looking only at psoriasis patients. We're looking at all the patients taking Embraer, RA patients, ankylosing spondylitis, all of them. And in the U.S. and Canada, more than 17,000 patients, uh, one case of uh, reactivation of TB. In the outside of U.S. and Canada, which will be more expected to have more TB outside of the U.S., out of over 7,000 patients, there were four cases of TB uh, reactivation. It's also important to note that TB reactivation uh, risk is su suggest to be lower with Embraer in, in comparison to the TNF monoclonal antibodies. And not to go in, into a, a lot of uh, basic science, but Dr. Louis will feel free to uh, interject here. But this is a, an important thing that I want to mention, and we want his help as well. Safety profile across the board. And you're looking at SIs, meaning the serious infections, OIs, the opportunistic infections. And you see that the numbers are a little higher when we're looking at the RA population. And the numbers are always lower when we're looking at the plaque psoriasis patients. So patients with plaque psoriasis, skin involvement alone, uh, or even uh, psoriatic arthritis have a much lower risk for serious infections, opportunistic infections. And uh, Dr. Louis, what, what is the reason for that on the RA population being a higher risk for infections? Uh, we don't take care of them as well as you take care of your psoriatic arthritis patients. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody really knows. There are two different populations, and I've already suggested to you there may be different mechanisms of, of action there. And I think patients with rheumatoid arthritis tend to be on much more immunologic uh, therapies, right. immunologic modulating therapies mm -hmm. than others. So that may be part of it. Um, yes. uh, it's a very interesting figure up there because I tend to think 
uh, as a rheumatologist that you may have more skin involvement of infections with your very severe psoriatic patients. So I would have expected uh, a little bit more mm -hmm. uh, than what's been reported, yes. but I'll keep my mind open on that. Yes, and, and that's a very good point. Do we actually see a lot of skin infections in the patients with psoriasis? We, we don't really. We see more skin infections with our patients with eczema, right, who have a barrier defect and psoriasis much less common. But at the same time, if we are sending a patient psoriasis to have any uh, surgery, the surgeons will refuse to have any surgery done if a patient has any plaques of psoriasis near the surgical site because they are concerned about staph and other uh, skin infections, which we know that is not necessarily true. Uh, in terms of, uh, if we're looking at malignancies, uh, the ratio for non-melanoma skin cancer was 2.77 for patients with black psoriasis. And uh, so the risk for skin cancers in general, uh, let, me, let me summarize the, the data for you. We know that patients with psoriasis are more, a little bit more prone to have skin cancers because most of those patients with moderate to severe psoriasis, they have already underwent PUVA in the past. So PUVA, UVA, UVB, and tanning beds, you name it. Patients are more prone to develop skin cancers later on. Uh, is that the psoriasis that is leading to more skin cancers later, or is it the biologic treatment that is leading to more skin cancers later? Uh, we don't know, but there is not an increased evidence for higher rates of skin cancer uh, when we look at all the, the safety data information. Now, this is just a summary and not to go into details of the studies that were done with the embryo. And uh, here you have the US pivotal trial, the global pivotal trial. And uh, in the US trial, the indication was by the FDA, the patient starts with a higher dose uh, twice a week and then they drop after three months. In the global study, that was not conducted that way. But for FDA approval, it was we had to drop the dose after three months. And then we're looking at this data. We see also that in the US pivotal trial, there was a time that the medication was stopped and restarted later. And that's the important part that I want to go over with you in the next slide, because this is just showing an extension of the study. But I think the most important slide is that we take it back home to our patients in private practice. What happens if we have to stop embryo? Uh, for many reasons. The patient moved to another part of the country. The insurance ran out. Uh, the patient just decided to discontinue because he didn't want to do more injections. Does the psoriasis come back right away? It, it actually, it doesn't happen immediately. So in the clinical trials, it shows that if the patient discontinues, withdraws the medication, uh, it will take up to five months for the psoriasis to trickle back up again. And uh, so those patients that discontinue and then they restarted after those five months, the response went back up to the level where it was before. So you have a, a not only a long-term efficacy, but a sustained and recaptured, uh, recaptured uh, response for those patients who discontinued the drug. Now we're going back to psoriatic arthritis data, Dr. Lewin. This is the psoriatic arthritis pivotal trial that studied uh, placebo, PBO, twice a week against etanercept, 25 milligrams twice a week. And I think they gave it for uh, two, uh, 48 weeks, right, uh, mm -hmm. in, in this study. 
And then uh, for the ones that were on placebo, since they had had it for the 48 weeks, then they then switched them over so that they, anybody that gets placebo in a study has to get the drug eventually. So then they got the, the drug after 48 weeks, uh, as well as the ones that started with it continue to get it for 48 weeks. So they have 25 milligrams twice a week, which was the original study. And so when you look at the ACR scores, you see that the ACR scores with that therapy are better than with placebo. And the, the curves sh sort of show you the difference. Now, they picked the ACR 20 scores, and that is meaning the American College of Rheumatology, where you have to get 20% better in all the different measures. And that's what the FDA requests that you have to do that's the data they want to show that you can separate it from placebo. For those of us that see patients, that score is not very helpful for us. We tend to think of an ACR 50 or 70 score in order to be clinically significant. But we had to, I mean, Amgen had to submit this kind of study uh, so that it was approved by the FDA. And it shows you that there is a clinical difference between placebo and etanercept. And more important than that, I think, oh, and it reminds us that also that when you start giving it after the 48, um, after the initial period and you start it up again, then it eventually catches up. So the placebo ones, when they're treated, it catches up. It reminds me to tell you that when you read the ACR scores, you should say, well, look, Dr. Louie, you've just told us that it's a different disease. Why are you using the measure for rheumatoid arthritis to look at psoriatic arthritis? Is the ACR score relevant or as relevant as it could be? And again, people are working on that because the ACR scores doesn't even touch the distal interphalangeal joint. So read those articles a little bit more carefully. It's not quite the right measure to look at there. The right measure to look at, I think, let's see, treatment with etanercept, improved joint symptoms, ACR scores, uh, 20 responses are sustained out to two years. And I think that's the one that, sh uh, that uh, sh shows that data. But the one I, the slide I really want to show you is the radiographic progression. I've already su suggested to you that 5% 5% of the people with psoriatic arthritis get mutilants. It's not very common, but when you see somebody with the accordion fingers, you'll never forget it. You take an x-ray, the joint's gone on both sides, and you take that finger and it's like an accordion. The skin's still there and you can open and close it like that. I mean, they are truly, truly deformed and crippled with that. But what this is telling us is when you give etanercept that the X-ray scores actually get better. They're below the line. Above the line means that the scores are getting worse. Below the line means that they're getting better. And this is a negative score. So that's a good sign. Now, that really uh, says a little bit about what you're doing, both in rheumatoid arthritis and in psoriatic arthritis with other therapies. Many people feel better on some therapies. Methotrexate alone can give you a response and make you feel better joint-wise. 
We suggested that in rheumatoid arthritis and even in some few patients with psoriatic arthritis. But you and I have to remind them that not only are we looking at them today when they're feeling better, but we also are going to see them in five and 10 years, and we want to make sure that none of those joints, none of that bone is resorbed, none of the joints are destroyed. And that's what we have to think about here. Do you do uh, x-rays to follow up those patients uh, over time? Yes, we do do x-rays. Uh, some people didn't believe in that, but I think it's very important to do follow-up x-rays. Many people are looking at uh, ultrasound and MRIs because we want to see the inflammation even before it affects the bone. Remember when you take an x-ray, you're only seeing the bone damage. You're not seeing the inflammatory mechanism, so to speak, that induces that bone damage early. So many of us are moving on over there, but it's very, very expensive to do that. Mm -hmm. The ultrasound is, is a lot cheaper. And those data are just beginning to come out. Because when you think about it, we should be treating them before they have bone damage. Why wait till the horse has left the barn? Why wait until there's damage? Stop them before the damage. And what we're beginning to find in rheumatoid arthritis, which I think is going to move on over to psoriatic arthritis, if you get them early enough and treat them very aggressive, there's a much higher incidence of remission, a much higher incidence of remission that lasts longer. And now that's why we're beginning to think that if we can get them within the first six months and treat them aggressively, some of those people may be in remission for a longer period of time. And maybe we can taper some of the drugs, but that's being studied now by the NIH. They actually have a protocol in rheumatoid arthritis, not yet in psoriatic arthritis, which is called the FLARE protocol. And that's, uh, Mike Ward is generating that. Okay. Very good. So uh, we're, we're back to, do you want me to talk about the, uh, uh, the um, SAEs? Yes, it's still Okay, so this is serious adverse uh, events. That's what SAE means, serious adverse events. And, uh, uh, she's already been through much of this. They're looking at malignancy, you're looking at death, you're looking at serious infections, that, that's SI, and it doesn't look like that's increased. And the ones that actually show it year after year after year um, uh, doesn't show that there's an increase as you continue on the drug. And that's very important for us to know, all right? So there's no cumulative effect of that. Now, you'll read a lot of studies that say there's more infection, there's more malignancy, there's more skin cancers, and it depends on what you read, randomized control trials or observational studies, or both. So I would just call your attention to JAMA, September this year. There's a nice review on malignancies by Dr. Suarez Almador, that's down at the University of Texas, and she goes through all the randomized control trials, and she puts it all together for us, and the bottom line is there's no increased malignancy. All right, so then the question comes up, Dr. Louie, if somebody has a malignancy, can we use these therapies? And nobody has any data on that yet. People are now beginning to treat after the malignancy has been treated and gone, and they're using the biologics, not only etanercept, but the others. They're beginning to do that. But we need some data on that. But, uh, so I can't give you uh, an approved answer from anybody on the basis of the studies yet. Okay. Okay. 
So um, based, based on uh, what Dr. Louie was saying, you know, and we all know that those patients will come to a dermatology office before they go to a rheumatology office because we see the skin first. So it's, it's certainly up to us to make that decision, to make that evaluation. He mentioned that if the patient has nail pitting, if the patient has some degree of skin psoriasis, the next question will be, well, what about the joints? And touching the patient is very important. When he was mentioned about anthocytis, touching the joints, see if there is any swelling, the ankles, um, all, of, all of those areas that are related to, uh, to, rheum to rheumatology were not actually trying to become dermat uh, rheumatologists, but we need to be more educated in at least finding if the patient has early signs of psoriatic arthritis so we can make the decision on the biologic. Like I mentioned to you of cases that patient had very little body surface area. I had a patient who had only the genital area, although we know from the Academy of Dermatology that if the patient has psoriasis in certain areas, and it doesn't need to be a body surface area of 10% uh, or five and above. If it's just in the genital area, if it's just on the, on the face, where it can cause a lot of stress to a patient, palms and soles, we know how much the stressful, how much painful they can be. Those patients are requalified for a biologic. So I always, when I examine my patients, I'm looking at location of psoriasis, I'm looking at the psychological effects to their patient, I'm looking at psoriatic arthritis, possibilities, and I do uh, try to collaborate with uh, rheumatologists so we can work together. Other things that are important to mention is that we know today that there are a lot of comorbidities related to psoriasis. Psoriasis is not just skin, psoriasis is not just joints. Psoriasis involves multiple organs. It's a state of inflammation. So patients with more severe psoriasis, the younger the patient severe psoriasis, the more likely they are to develop an MI later on. So they are at risk for cardiovascular, they're at risk for metabolic syndrome, um, diabetes, etc. So we need multiple specialties and we need the primary care physicians involved in their care as well. So we need all to collaborate together to have our patients have a better care. And uh, this is important, and uh, uh, knowing that the, the medication has been, uh, has been around for quite some time, I'm, I honestly, I didn't know that the initial studies were actually conducted since in 1993. Were you involved in those early studies? Uh, but it's going back to the early studies on RA patients. So there is an accumulation of over 3 million patients' years of post-marketing post experience. So the longer the medication has been in the market, the more safety data we have. Certainly when something new comes around, we don't know, you know how the, the medication is going gonna, is gonna to act in, in terms of safety and so on and so forth. So it makes us feel very comfortable that this been, has been around for quite some time. So in summary, you know, I hope you, you guys enjoyed this, this discussion. We're open for questions, but we're not done until we go over a little bit more about safety information. And uh, the safety information, I think I always consider the, uh, the um, packaging cert as the Bible. And uh, I think it's important for us in the medical field to know exactly what's in the packaging cert. I always mention that I, when I review side effects with my patients where we're having a discussion, I have my patients uh, sign the packaging cert and I put it in the chart. It's just a way for me to know that I remember having a discussion. Do I go into every single line? Do I read the packaging cert? Absolutely not. I don't have the time for that. But I try to mention all the possible risks. 
Also, I mentioned to my patients that, oh, look, if you're concerned about infections, TB, malignancies, and so on, that you see commercials on television and you see uh, blurbs in the packaging cert relating to we don't know if a patient can have lymphoma later on, we don't know this, we don't know that. I mentioned, too, that patients with psoriasis nowadays, we know that they are at a higher risk for malignancy because of the state of inflammation of psoriasis. So that goes along with all the comorbidities. So the way I see my patients in my practice is in terms of following them. I do a PPD annually. Right now I'm doing Contiferon Gold. Uh, PPD in Las Vegas, it's uh, less available in a lab. You can buy the PPD, but in a local lab, I cannot send the patient for a PPD anymore for whatever reason. So we're doing more quantiferon gold, and we do that on a yearly basis. We do the normal labs, CBC. I check for hepatitis. I want to make sure the patients did not have exposure to hepatitis. I want to make sure all the vaccinations have been done ahead of time. But if uh, the patient has to take a vaccination, live vaccine is the Zoster vaccine. At least we know that with Embryo having a short life, uh, life uh, span, they can stop, get the vaccination, restart again if necessary. Um, and I'll have Dr. Louis wrap up some of the other safety information, how you monitor your patients. I just summarized a little bit of what I do. Well, I think you did a great job of doing that. And so I would just reiterate what you've said. I think we're legally bound to a skin test or look at the memory for TB in every case before we start etanercept uh, uh, or any of the TNF monoclonal uh, antibodies. So uh, you can either do a PPD, whatever is convenient for you, or you can do the Quantiferon Gold or what they also call the IGRA, which is, uh, uh, which is uh, Interferon Gamma Release Assay. I-G-R-A, interferon gamma release assay. And there are two assays. One comes out of England, it's called the TST, and one comes out of uh, here, and it's called the quantiferon gold. Okay, so the pearl is, if you're going to do the quantiferon gold, don't send in the specimen on a Friday. Send it in on a Monday or Tuesday or even a Wednesday. Now, now you think I've been drinking my lunch. You oh, say, why, why is it's that so? True, yeah. All right? That's <laughs> so because the interferon gold release, uh, interferon gamma release assay requires living cells. And if you're going to send a tube of living cells to somebody, you don't want it to sit over the weekend in some lab. You want it taken to the lab early enough so that they can separate out the cells. What they have to do is FICOL separate out the lymphocytes take the lymphocytes, put them into culture with the antigens. And the antigens are there that look like TB antigens, but they don't put in the antigen that is for BCG. So if you have a patient from a foreign country who got BCG immunization, they may have a positive PPD, but they should have a negative quantiferon gold because that antigen isn't put in the solution. Then you grow up those cells, and if it recognizes that antigen, that TB antigen, it'll get hot and bothered and secrete out a cytokine, many cytokines, but the one they chose was interferon gamma. Then they take the supernatant of that, then they look with an ELISA for how much interferon gamma is there. 
So that assay, you can tell if the cell, some of the cells die over the weekend, isn't going to be as reliable, and you'll get back something like indeterminate. So you gotta do it, you gotta send in that sample before. Now the PPD, you know and I know, it requires a good person to be able to put it in the right area, intradermally, and then you, the poor patient has to come back, and you can uh, uh, then circle the, uh, uh, the area of induration. I used to tell the patients, if you can't come back, take a ballpoint pen, feel where the bump is, and circle it with a ballpoint pen, take a piece of scotch tape, put it over there, and the mark from the ballpoint pen will be on the scotch tape, put it on a postcard and send it in to me. But I'm not as compulsive as you are to get them to sign the, 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 the note. But that's the, the two things, the pearls that I would give you about looking for TB. Why are we so concerned about TB? It turns out that the TNF monoclonal antibodies tend to reactivate TB. Etanercept does it a little bit, TNF monoclonal antibodies does it four to 10 times more. And so the first paper that came out from the FDA after these two drugs, infliximab and etanercept, were out was on infliximab producing all these cases of TB. That was the first report, it was in the New England Journal, okay. So it really turns out we don't want to reactivate. Now let's go to the second part of the question. Second part of the question is, but can you get TB? Do those drugs give you TB? And the answer is, think about it. No, the drugs don't give you TB. They don't give you the infection. But if you have an active infection, it can spread. And that's why on all the TNF biologic drugs, you'll see a black box under the word infection. Any infection, any active infection, any skin cellulitis, any pneumonia, that will spread if you're on a TNF inhibitor, all right? So you've got to take them off of that. And there are some rheumatologists that actually say to the patient, if you develop a fever and you are, have any pus anywhere, you're coughing up pus or you've got pus on your skin, stop the drug and get on antibiotics before you get back on the drug, all right? There are even some rheumatologists that give them, because if it's the weekend, that give them a prescription for antibiotics to take. If you can't see the doctor, we want you on antibiotics. So there, a friend of mine uh, has done that. Yeah. I don't know any other rheumatologist, mm -hmm. but there's one prominent rheumatologist that does that, okay. And he and I co-edited yes. a book on, on treatment, uh -huh. so I can't put him down. <laughs> He's a good friend. But those are the things. Active infections can spread on a TNF because God gave us the TNF to control that, okay. So that's what you have to worry about. And the hepatitis B can spread and can become reactivated. And so we're worried about that. But that's all right. If they're hepatitis B positive, you can, if they still need the anti-TNF, you can treat that and give the anti-TNF. Right. As long as you know so you're not surprised. Yes. Okay. And remember, if you have a patient who has a positive PPD or positive quantiferone, how, how are you going to deal with that patient? You know, that's another thing that we should do. I, I learned very early on in my career that spreading the liability is a good thing. And I say that in a good sense, that we need to consult with our colleagues. So now comes the infectious disease physician in place who will tell us what to do. And those patients can be on a biologic as long as they start on a treatment for their TB. I had a patient recently from Cuba who um, 
She came from another dermatologist, got, got the medication, the TNF inhibitor denied by the dermatologist. I didn't know that. She came to see me, maybe for a second opinion. I started the process of approval before I got the labs. Once I got the labs, I saw positive, positive contiferon, positive TB, PPD, and uh, I had to tell her the news. I can't start you on this. I have to send you to the ID doctor, get started on the medication, then later we'll get you started. She got very mad. She was very upset at me because she couldn't do it right away. No, I don't have TB, but you had the exposure. So we gotta be careful with those patients. They deserve treatment, unfortunately. We're trying to do what is best for a patient and protect them. Okay, so the uh, corollary of that, and I'm going to anticipate one of your questions, is going to say, okay, if I get a positive PPD or a positive IGRA, how long do I have to treat with the INH before I can start the biologic? So what does everybody say, and what's the data show? Are there any reports on that? So the learned people, <clears throat> that's, what, what do they call that? Uh, uh, the people who make a suggestion say that you wait a month, but there's no data on that. But you wait a month because you want to give them the INH and make sure that they don't have a side effect to the INH, which will lead you to stop it and then start another course of anti-TB therapy. And they have a new course that's come out, and I forget the name, it starts with an R, that's probably better than the INH, but it hasn't been vetted yet. And, the, uh, and uh, the people have not said it, but I, I just learned about that in Asia last week. Uh, but for now, you give the INH, you give it for a month, to make sure that they don't have a side effect from the INH, and then you can start them on an anti-TNF. You could probably do it at two weeks. Just make sure their liver is all right and they don't have any other side effect, okay? There is one paper in the journal AIDS by a fellow named Robert Wallace, spelled W-A-L-L-I-S. And he's a TBologist, and he did go to Africa to do this study. He found a group of patients who had HIV and TB. And he treated the HIV and the TB at the same time. And then he took serial sputums to see when it was clear from the sputum and serial x-rays. And then to half of them, he gave an anti-TNF. What do you think happened? The people who got the anti-TNF got better quicker. Why is that so? Because he proposed that some anti-TNFs break down the granuloma, so it lets the bug out of the granuloma, okay? And then you have the antibiotic already there, so it kills it a little bit better. He never went ahead to do the study in a more complete form, okay? But, that's, but that should give you some assurance that if you wait a month before you start it, you're okay, all right? Because he started it at the same time. I know, you know, as you can tell, we can go on for the rest of the afternoon on this talk because it's very interesting. I have a passion for psoriasis, so do, does Dr. Louie. It's our time. Uh, to wrap things up, I think uh, due to the fact that the meeting starts again, restarts at 1.30, we're going to be available for questions. Probably uh, we leave the podium and you guys can meet with us at the back. I think it might be easier um, to do it that way. And, and thank you so much for your attention and opportunity for us to be here. Appreciate it.